Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Hey, happy July, y'all. We've got a great show this week. First, Dr. Scott Miller fills us in on what planets, stars, and constellations we can see in the night sky this month. Then I want to tell you about a recent paper on the dietary habits of black bears. That'll offer some interesting info about bear behavior, but also possibly provide some insight about our own diets. If human food is bad for bears, should we be eating it? And we'll end the show with a poem by the newest member of our Bench Talk team, our new program poet, Dr. Leslie Moise. Let's get going. Scott here. The moon can be an aid to finding planets and does so quite well in the month of July. For example, on July 3rd, a thin crescent moon may be spied low in the western horizon about 30 minutes after sunset. Sunset in July is roughly 9 p.m. It will be just west of the pair of planets Mars and Mercury that are setting quite quickly after sunset at this time. By the evening of the 4th, the moon will be a bit easier to see in the western sky and will be leaving those two planets behind to do their slow fade in the west as the month continues. It will be closer to mid-month before the moon can be of assistance again, but this time no real assistance will be needed. On July 12th, the moon will lie west of Jupiter. Jupiter is the brightest star-like object in the evening skies at present and far outshines the stars present in our skies. Even the bright star Antares, south of Jupiter in the constellation Scorpius the Scorpion, does not compare favorably in brightness. Sliding past Jupiter by the 13th, the moon is east of that bright planet and in search of another. By the 15th, the moon will have found its next planetary companion in the form of Saturn. That evening, the moon will be just west of that farthest of the naked eye planets and will leave it behind by the next evening. The moon will be full, or nearly so, which might make for a little bit of a challenge. But Saturn is no slouch in terms of brightness. Though it is not as bright as Jupiter, suffering as it does from a slightly smaller size, but nearly twice as far from us, Saturn still is quite bright in the skies for July because it also reaches opposition. This happens this year on July 9th. Opposition is that time when the Earth overtakes an outer planet in our faster orbit. This means that from our perspective, that planet and the Sun are in opposite halves of the sky. When the Sun sets, that planet is rising in the east, and when the Sun rises, that planet sets in the west. Opposition is also when we are closest to that outer planet on this passage, making that planet as bright as we generally can see it in the sky. With planets marking just north of west and south of east, it isn't too hard to determine the directions north and south. If I extend my right hand to attempt to grasp a Mars and Mercury while my left hand is used to grasp Jupiter or Saturn, I find myself facing more or less to the south. If I reverse myself, I'm facing more or less north. While facing north, 
I can spot in the northwestern sky the familiar Big Dipper. I have often started my programs off by talking about its location and using it to find other constellations. But if you have been following this broadcast since last fall, you will definitely notice that the location of the Big Dipper in the sky has changed. Then it was found working its way up from the northeastern sky. Its placement now in the northwestern sky as darkness fall is a reflection of the change of position of the Earth along its orbit. The spin axis of the Earth always points toward the North Star, Polaris, which I have mentioned in past recordings can be found using the front pair of stars in the bowl of the Big Dipper. Because the axis stays oriented to always point to that star, Polaris remains fixed in our skies throughout the year. But the orbital motion of the Earth around the Sun means that from our perspective, the Sun seems to drift along a collection of 13 constellations. And if the Sun is in the direction of a particular constellation, then other constellations north and south of it are hidden by the Sun's daylight glow in our sky. This means that other constellations not in that direction are those seen in our nighttime skies. The end result is that during different seasons, different constellations become that season's star patterns each night. Orion the Hunter, for example, dominates the southern skies of winter and early spring, but it is not visible in early evening skies at this time of the year. The exceptions to the seasonal constellations are those located in the northern sky, such as Ursa Major, the constellation of which the Big Dipper is part. In the case of these circumpolar constellations, the effect the change of seasons has on them is that they simply start at a slightly different point in the sky each night. Sometimes they will start high overhead, then tend to start in the northwestern sky. Later in the year they may be low along the northern horizon. Then they begin to appear again in the northeastern sky and the cycle continues again. Thus there may be a season where they are best placed, say high overhead, but these circumpolar constellations generally don't disappear all year long, or for the most part don't. In the case of these constellations, it simply is a matter of looking for them either high or low on the northern horizon. Now that we are officially in the summer season, the summer solstice occurring back on June 21st, I can scan west, south, and east to pick up those summer constellations. Moving from the Big Dipper to high overhead is the kite-shaped constellation Boötes the Herdsman. Its bright star, Arcturus, is one of those that I have mentioned that can be found using the Big Dipper, specifically the curve of its handle. One simply arcs to Arcturus. The rest of the stars of this kite-shaped constellation are then north of Arcturus. Just east of Boötes is a curve of stars marking Corona Borealis, the northern crown. Its brightest star might be imagined to be a gem embedded in that crown. Beyond Corona Borealis is a small squashed square of star. The shape is more like a trapezoid, a four-sided figure with one base longer than the base on the opposite side. This marks part of the constellation Hercules, the straw man. The rest of Hercules is made up of dimmer stars, often hidden in light-polluted skies, but which can be found with the aid of a good star map, many of which are available online, or by using some astronomy-based apps on one's phone. Just east of Hercules is the bright star Vega, the brightest of three bright stars found in the eastern sky marking what is known as the Summer Triangle. The Summer Triangle is an asterism, or simply a pattern of stars, much like the trapezoid figure of Hercules or the Big Dipper in Ursa Major. 
This somewhat isosceles triangle gets its name because it is noticeable and rises in the east at the beginning of summer. Vega, the brightest of the three, is in the small constellation of Lyra the Harp, a small rectangle of stars just east of Vega. Completing the triangle is Deneb to the north of Vega and Altair a bit more to the east of this pair, at least in the early evening. Altair pairs the swing south of the pair as the night continues. Deneb marks the tail of the constellation Cygnus the Swan, which, when properly seen in darker skies, looks like a swan in flight, with a pair of stars on either side of its body marking outstretched wings, while the body extends down through three more stars almost in a straight line, terminating with Alberio. Alberio is almost on the line connecting Vega and Altair. Altair itself is the brightest star in Aquila the Eagle, a bird also imagined in flight. Made mostly of dim stars that are threatened from seeing because of light pollution, a good star map can be used under darker skies to show the rest of this constellation. The ever-changing moon, its planetary companions, and an assortment of constellations that have shapes that make them easier to find. Lots to see if one wanders out on these warm summer evenings. Hey, you've heard about those signs posted in the Yellowstone National Monument, right? Maybe you've even seen them. The ones that say, please do not feed the bears. Well, it turns out, because of the article I want to tell you about today, we know more about why feeding bears human food is not good for them. This article was published in the February 21st, 2019 issue of a journal called Scientific Reports. And the authors of the paper, there's a couple ecologists from the University of Wisconsin, and then a couple of mammal biologists from the Colorado Department of Parks and Wildlife. These researchers were interested in what happens to the American black bear when they eat what's called food subsidies. Food subsidies are when wild animals are eating human foods. Now, it could be garbage. It could be food that people have specifically put out for them. It could be food that's put out for pets, or it could be feed that's put into bird feeders, or it could be when the bear steals crop or garden plants, or even eats a farmer's livestock. That's all food subsidy. Now, the American black bear is considered an omnivore, which means they'll eat anything, just like humans. In nature, only about 10% of their diet is meat, like fish, but that also includes insects and insect larvae. The other 90% of the black bear diet is from plants. They'll eat young leaves, roots, bulbs, flowers, fruits, nuts, acorns, and seeds. And like Winnie the Pooh, bears do like honey. They'll even eat the bees that are making the honey. Because black bears are so large, they're weighing a couple hundred pounds generally. They are basically eating machines. They've been observed to eat for 10 hours straight. They're just constantly eating. So it's understandable that if there's human food around, black bears are going to eat it. Maybe that food is in trash cans. Maybe it's in farmer's fields. 
Maybe it's in a campground where the campers are out taking a hike. They're going to be attracted to that human food. Estimates are that some black bears, even if living in the wild, might be getting up to 30% of their calories from human food. Now, there are several things that are bad about wild animals eating human food. It might not provide the best nutrition to that animal. It might contain things that are toxic to that species. The food could be contaminated with a pathogen, like if it's been sitting around in a trash can for a while. Eating human foods also affects animal behavior, like they aren't so scared of people and cars or houses anymore, which could place the animal at greater risk of injury. Now, as you already know, black bears hibernate in the winter. They go to sleep for months. This basically means that they lower their metabolic rate and reduce their body temperature in order to save energy, since the foods that they would be eating are not as abundant in the winter. Hibernation also reduces the likelihood of predators getting the animal. Now, it turns out that hibernating mammals tend to have longer lifespans. They live longer. Uh, Maybe all that sleeping delays the onset of senescence. Is something about the reduced metabolic rates, they save energy, they have less cellular turnover, less oxidative damage to their cells. They also have longer telomeres on the ends of their chromosomes. That's because they don't get as reduced as they do in mammals that don't hibernate. One of the observations that wildlife biologists have made in the past is that black bears who eat a lot of human subsidies, human food, they tend to have shortened hibernation periods. Most black bears hibernate from four to six months, but in bears that eat a lot of human food, that is truncated. Up until now, though, there really wasn't any hard evidence for this. That's one of the objectives of this particular paper. So what they did in this research was they captured 30 different female black bears in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains of southern Colorado near the town of Durango. Now, these were free-ranging bears, so no one knew exactly what they had been eating. They took blood and hair samples from each of the 30 females. They determined the age of the animals. You can do that by looking at the teeth. It was determined if they were pregnant or if they had cubs or if they were still lactating. And before releasing the bears back to the wild, they fitted each animal with a GPS collar. That way they could monitor the location, the movement of the animal, and determine its length of hibernation because it wouldn't be moving for a long time while it's asleep. Once they had that blood from each bear, they analyzed it at the DNA level to determine its genetic makeup. They also examined the length of the telomeres on the chromosomes. Now, telomeres are these long stretches of very repetitive DNA that occur at both ends of each of our chromosomes. The telomeres are thought to be protecting the chromosome from deterioration, but as animals age, their telomeres tend to get shorter. So these researchers use telomere length as an indicator of cellular aging. Well, they also examined the hair samples from each of these deer, and what they analyzed the hair for was the amount of carbon-13 in it. Now, most of the carbon in our environment has an atomic weight of 12. That's called C12. That's because it has six protons and six neutrons. And the electrons are so small, you really don't worry about them. So it's the protons and the neutrons that contribute to the weight of the atom. Carbon-12 has 12 of these particles. Carbon-13 has an extra neutron, so it weighs just a little bit more. 
Well, 99% of the natural carbon in our atmosphere is the C12 isotope, while only about 1% of our carbon is the heavier isotope, which is C13. Most plants on Earth prefer the C12 isotope of carbon, and that's good since that makes up 99% of our carbon. But there are another type of plants called C4 plants that actually prefer the C13 isotope. Some of these C13 plants evolved in places that have hot, dry climates. This alternative photosynthetic pathway, it's called the C4 pathway, is conducive to saving water. So it's a very efficient type of photosynthesis for plants that grow in hot, dry climates. The most famous C4 plant out there is corn. Corn is a C4 plant, but so is sugarcane, sorghum, millet, and crabgrass. These plants will take up carbon dioxide even if it does contain carbon-13, which other plants don't particularly like. Well, it turns out this differential preference by different plants for the two isotopes of carbon makes it possible to determine what animals eat. If we eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, for instance, and I'm not talking about the C4 plants, so not corn, sugar cane, sorghum, or millet, but if we eat regular C3 fruits and vegetables, which is most of them, we really aren't eating very much carbon-13. But if we eat processed food, we're eating a lot of corn. And corn contains a lot more of that C13 isotope. And that isotope is preserved in the food chain. So if we eat a chicken that ate a lot of corn, we get the C13 isotope from that chicken. Plus, the sugar we eat in soda pop and candy comes from high fructose corn syrup. That's getting us extra C13. Lots of other foods we eat are made out of corn, but it's processed food. Fast food hamburgers contain a lot of corn filler. French fries are cooked in corn oil. Ketchup, mayonnaise, salad dressing, gravy, yogurt, baked goods, peanut butter, vitamins, even milk all contain corn products. Twinkies are almost 100% corn. A lot of the junk food we eat contains high levels of corn. Chicken nuggets, non-dairy creamer, cheese Whiz, frozen waffles. And then don't forget that corn is used to make a lot of grain alcohol. So alcoholic beverages also can contain a lot of corn. So if we consume these kind of foods, we are getting a lot of C13. So what these researchers did was examine the hair of these bears to figure out how much C13 was in there with the idea that the more C13 there was, the more human food they were eating. In their paper, they presented a graph. One axis was how much human food was each bear eating and the other axis was, how long was their hibernation time? And there was actually a pretty good correlation. They found that the more black bears ate human food, the shorter was their hibernation period. They observed a pretty wide range in hibernation periods, from 134 days to 223 days. And a lot of that variation could be explained by age. Basically, the older the bear, the longer they tend to hibernate. But even correcting for age, they found that those bears that hibernated the longest period of time tended to have the lowest relative amount of carbon-13, meaning that they ate less food products that contain corn. 
So it's looking like the more human food the bears eat, the shorter their hibernation period. Now, that's not to say that eating human food caused the bears to hibernate for a shorter period of time. It's just that there's a correlation between those two things. And shorter hibernation periods were also correlated with shorter telomeres on the chromosomes. The link between hibernation duration and telomere length wasn't as strong as between hibernation length and eating human food. But other researchers have reported a correlation between how long hibernation occurs and the length of their telomeres. So generally speaking, if a bear hibernates for a long time, they do tend to have longer telomeres. And that's thought to mean less cellular aging. The authors conclude that when black bears eat human food, whether it's crops in the field or out of a garbage can or from handouts, they are likely going to experience shorter hibernation periods during the winter, and they are more likely going to have shorter telomeres. They are suggesting then that these junk food eating bears are experiencing greater cellular aging. These authors summarized other research papers on this subject and said, quote, increased consumption of human foods by bears has been associated with increased body weights and fecundity, which means more reproduction, but also reduced survival due to vehicle collisions, lethal management, etc. As a result, it has been suggested that urban areas may serve as an ecological trap for bears, unquote. So what I'm saying here is that since bears that hang out with people are going to end up eating more human food, they gain weight, they have more offspring, therefore they don't want to hibernate as long or they can't hibernate as long. And this lifestyle is just not good for these bears in the long run. They're likely going to age quicker than bears who eat wild food. This was an interesting article. I feel bad for the bears that end up scrounging for human food since it appears that it's potentially hurting their overall health status. But I guess I'm equally worried about us humans who are actually eating this food every day. If our food causes telomere shortening and thus cellular aging in bears, what is that food doing to us? Maybe we would be healthier eating the way bears eat in the wild. 10% meat, I don't know about all those insects, 90% plant material. It's estimated that there are about 300,000 black bears in the United States. So I guess that's a pretty high, healthy population of black bears. So it's not like this diet of human junk food is threatening their numbers right now. But I feel badly that they might not be hibernating as well as they would with a wild diet. And I wonder what it will mean for their future reproductive patterns and the long-term health of this, the largest meat-eating animal in the United States. There's also the issue of behavior. One of the co-authors of this paper said, quote, Human food resources that are increasingly ubiquitous on the landscape can have really important ecological outcomes. High levels of human food resources, especially in urban or suburban areas, can really rearrange how species behave and interact, unquote. So don't forget, human food helps female bears put on more weight before the coming winter hibernation, and it also increases their reproductive rate. So if human food is available, they are going to go get it. This might be one reason why the number of conflicts between bears and people seem to be on the rise. 
I found a 2017 article in the Denver Post saying that whereas there were some 933 bears killed by designated hunters in Colorado in 2016, there were another 334 bears that were killed by people who felt threatened by them. So that's almost one bear a day being killed by people who are just afraid of the bears. And on top of that, there's another 70 bears that were killed by vehicles that year. Urbanization, dry weather conditions, shortage of natural foods might be driving bears to forage for more human food. There are reports around Durango, Colorado, and that's where this research was done. Reports around there that bears were coming closer to people than they used to, and they don't display as much natural fear of people as they used to. One government office near Durango was getting 50 phone calls a day about errant bears. There's reports of bears eating chickens, breaking into homes. There was one report of a bear chasing children, another of a camper being bitten in the head by a bear. And before you start thinking this is just a problem in Colorado, I did want to tell you that according to the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources, the black bear population in Kentucky is on the rise again. They took a big hit in the 1800s due to settlement of Kentucky by whites but now they're resurging again. Now, the largest population of black bears is in the southeastern part of Kentucky, where we border Virginia and Tennessee. But black bears have been observed as close to us as Elizabethtown and Bernheim Research Forest. So this is an issue we just can't bear to ignore. Sorry. On a more serious note, Dr. Leslie Moise, Pinch Talk's own program poet, reminisces about a more personal encounter with a bear. Wilderness As I sped down I-79 through the West Virginia mountains, a dark-furred creature plopped over the guardrail, only a hundred yards in front of my gray Chevy. My foot lifted off the gas, the hum of tires decreased. What's a dog doing way out in the wilderness? Only then did I register the animal's size, taller than the hood of my car, its shape, such high shoulders, and shambling gait. Not a dog, a bear, a black bear, adolescent from its lankiness. The bear loped across the pavement, grew closer in spite of my reduced speed, Twenty yards ahead and to the side of my car, the bear reached the rail of the median's deep ravine, lolloped over. As I cruised past, the bear swiveled its head, paused, met my stare, held it. Two measureless moments, then galumphed into the thick woods of the ravine. It took a second for my foot to fumble firmly back on the gas. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word. 
benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you. <laughs>